welcome to Growing Trends. This is Chris, and may I introduce Anne. Today on Growing Trends, we're interviewing Tom Ogram, the author of The Allergy-Fighting Garden. Stop asthma and allergies with smart landscaping. Let's hear what Tom has to say. about your background Tom and then how you got into the allergy part because I'm really fascinated by that. Yeah I've been interested in gardening since I was a little kid. My grandfather was a doctor and loved to grow roses and stuff. We had a large yard. My dad planted a lot of fruit trees that my mother liked. I was crazy about those fruit trees and when I was seven years old my grandfather asked me uh, what I wanted for my birthday and I told him I wanted my own guava tree, which she thought was odd, but he went and bought one for me, and, and it was planted in our yard, and that was my tree, and so uh, I was the only kid I knew that had his his own tree, you know, and, and my brothers and sisters weren't supposed to pick the fruit off of it. That was Tom's tree, you know. By the age of five, I was actually, like, taking seeds off of, off of bushes and cleaning them and then planting them in the ground and uh, watering them just on my own to see what would happen, you know, what would grow. By 10, I was trying to graft trees and stuff. So I, I always had the garden bug. I got married very young. I eloped to Tijuana, Mexico with my wife, Yvonne, who was 17 and I was 19. And we got married 48 years later. We're still married. Yvonne had very bad allergies, and she also had asthma. Back in those days, uh, we had very little money. Her allergies and asthma were not under control at all. We knew nothing about it. And, and to make it worse, I was un I was not sympathetic because I'd, I'd found this book called Psychosomatic Illnesses, written by an MD. He talked at great length about allergies and asthma, and he claimed that uh, they mostly affected women, and that was because women were, uh, how was it he put it, uh, uh, oversensitive and prone to hysteria. Since I didn't have allergies or asthma, it made perfect sense to me at the time. <laughs> and I, it's a terrible thing, you know. For, for years I didn't admit this, but I, I'm come clean on it. I'm come out of the closet on it. So... You know, here we were, we were newly married, and my poor wife, she'd be having an asthma attack, and I'd be giving her a lecture about how she ought to get her act together, you know, and... Wow. Just, uh, just a terrible thing, you know. So we went on that way, and I'm lucky she didn't divorce me, but after we'd been married, though, about 10 years or so, I was doing a landscape job somewhere up in Northern California, and an awful lot of people were sneezing, and the people I was doing the job for, that lady was having an asthma attack. It was springtime up, it was in Berkeley, and there were a, a huge amount of uh, acacia trees all in full bloom right at that time. And I, I uh, when I finished that job a week later, and I was driving back uh, south to where I live, in San Luis Obispo, California, I, I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know, I wonder if there would 
any kind of connection between those particular trees blooming and all these people having allergies. So I got the bright idea. I, I was teaching horticulture then, so I got the bright idea I'd get with my students. I would get them and I'd do it myself. Anyhow, but I, I was saying that I saw these things, these pamphlets put out on, on what they called sneezeless gardens. They told you to avoid all these different trees. Now, these trees were many, many trees, poplars, aspens, willows, maples, ash trees, yews, photocarpus, juniper, all dozens and dozens of, of things. So it, it left you very little choice. But nonetheless, I started to study these because I was interested in, like, well, I wanted to landscape my own yard so that nothing would make my wife sick. I was into it for a while when I realized that all of these species that they were telling you to uh, avoid as being the very worst, that were the ones that caused the very most allergies and the most asthma, that all of these species were what they called dioecious, in other words, separate sex. So that one tree was uh, all male and another tree was all female. So I started to study dioecious plants, which was something I hadn't spent a lot of time looking into. But I started to study them, and I, I found out that most of the dioecious plants, the pollen was spread by wind from the male trees to the female, and that the females made the berries or the fruit or the seeds. One night, uh, I remember it just like it almost like it happened yesterday. It was almost 30 years ago now, and my wife and I were sitting in bed, and she was reading a novel, and I was reading some book about pollen and trees or something, and uh, or not about pollen per se, but about these separate sex dioecious trees. I said to Yvonne, I said, uh, you know, all of these trees that they call in the worst, they're all separate sex. And she said, yeah. And I said, well, think about it. If they're separate sex, one juniper bush is a male, and it produces pollen, and another juniper bush is a female, and it produces no pollen. I said, well, if that's the case, then those female plants are actually allergy-free plants. They never produce any pollen. And my wife said to me, she said, oh, you know, you might be on to something there. And <laughs> so some 30 years later, I've become like quite the expert on these, these dioecious separate sex plants. And, and at the time, I had no idea how popular uh, clones of these species were, uh, nor did I have any idea that that horticulture was cloning out males of all these plants and very rarely females. I discovered that, oh, perhaps a year or so later, uh, at some point I was, this was back in the days of typewriters, of course, so I had, I was making volumes of notes that I would write on different plants and things, and people started finding out that I was researching this, and so people would ask me about some plant. I would have to go over all my notes to find what I had already discovered and everything. And at a certain point, I decided I would start, go backwards again, and I would just start studying all these plants alphabetically by their scientific name. So I, I started with A, you know, like Abelia or something, and I took it all the way to Zalchinaria. 
eventually, although that was a dozen, 15 years in the process. But I just started to study all the plants per their potential for producing a lot of pollen and per their potential for triggering allergies A to Z. But as I got further into it, more people found, and then people wanted me to give talks about it. And at this point, I decided I wanted to get, so I bought myself a good camera and a macro lens so I could get close-up pictures of these flowers. I started out, it was springtime, and I wanted to get photos of male flowers on an ash tree and female flowers on an ash tree so that I could show them in a talk. I looked, all over my town, every ash tree I saw was a male. I couldn't, that first year, I never even found a female ash tree in the town. I later learned there were, you know, this is a town of 40,000 people, and I understand that there were over 9,000 ash trees planted, and virtually every one that had been planted was a male. Then I found the same thing with the junipers and a whole host of other plants, and I thought it was quite crazy, and I thought maybe it was just germane to my own town, to San Luis Obispo, but uh, as I started looking in other towns, I started seeing this huge number of males and very few females in the landscape. I started to see it everywhere. I, uh, I, I saw it in England. I saw it on the Isle of Guernsey. I saw it in Israel. I saw it in Ireland. I, I saw it all across Canada. I saw it in New Zealand. I remember in New Zealand, I was with the city arbors, the city of Christ Church. We, they have their, the Christ Church has their own nursery where they grow their own trees for their own parks and, and street trees. So the nursery had been there more than a hundred years and they had a row of, of a tree called a, what they call a totara, which is a type of podocarpus, is very like a big U, and it's related. One of the nurserymen said, well, there's a hedge here, uh, along this road over here and it, it was, planted over a hundred years, he said, you should be able to find some female plants in that hedge, because surely they weren't cloning them out a hundred years ago. Because at that point, I, I hadn't been able to find any females of that species, even though it was a native species. The three of us walked this whole hedge, and it, and it was their spring, or fall here in the U.S. We walked all the way down this quarter-mile hedge, looking at all of these pruned-out uh, bushes, trees, every single one for the whole quarter mile was a male. So what that told me was that, Lordy, in, uh, even in New Zealand, more than 100 years ago, they were, they were doing this, getting just the male. I was in Sacramento, California, two years ago, and I was near the capital. I found this huge row, about a dozen trees, but space wide apart, and they were deodar cedars, and they were big towering trees, a uh, good hundred some feet tall and very wide. And the ground was covered with this bright yellow pollen all underneath of them. Uh, I had a pair of binoculars with me because I had been looking for birds at the same time. And so I, I started checking these trees, and on them it's very easy to see the female cones because they're huge and the male ones are small and shaped differently. The entire row was male. The guard there, who I guess gave tours or something, he told me that that row of deodar cedars had been planted in 1913. In nature, some of those are monaceous and will have both sexes on the same tree. Some are all male, some are all female. So 
those trees could have gone any one of three ways if they were seedlings. And the odds of all dozen of them being male are slim to none. That, that one in a million. They so they weren't. They had someone had cloned them out. They had cloned them all as males, and then they had planted them all. And so horticulture has been doing this for a long time. Nowadays in horticulture, we have a lot of advantages that we didn't used to have. We have uh, climate-controlled greenhouses. We have heated benches. Uh, we have powerful rooting hormones. We have mist systems, but better than that, we now have fogging systems. You know, a, a good propagator could just about grow roots on a broomstick now. And so in horticulture, what's called woody ornamentals, the trees and the shrubs and the, the vines and so forth, almost all of these are now, they're all produced, they're propagated by cuttings or by some form of asexual reproduction. And so they're not planting seed. They're they're cloning this material out. So so now and, and nowadays they have tissue culture, it makes it even faster. And so they they find a nice male tree, they take a branch off of it, they tissue culture it, the next thing they produce three million of the exact same clones. Uh these then all go into the landscape because they're males they produce all this pollen and they start making people sick. But you know, people often hear about my work and they think they think, one, I'm just talking about male and female plants, but that's not the case either. And then they also they also think that uh, I'm overstating uh, how many males and how few females there are in these urban landscapes, but I'm not overstating it at all. It, it's everywhere I go. It's extremely common, and apparently it's been going on for a very long time, although it's really accelerated in the last, oh, 20, 30, 40 years. You remember Dutch elm disease? Dutch elm disease, it, it swept across the United States. When I was a kid, almost every city you went to, it, it, the streets were lined with elm trees. They had this beautiful vase shape. The trees would meet over the road, make like a canopy to drive through. And the elm flowers were perfect flowers, meaning that they had both male and female in the same in the same flowers, and they produced some nectar too. And so they were uh, a food source for urban uh, bees and for butterflies and different things like that. Now, because there were so many of these elms, it was hardly a good example of diversity. When you, you know, when you lack biodiversity in landscape, you're you're setting yourself up for disaster sooner or later because when something comes it gets that, that's all you got. And that's what happened in the United States. It started this Dutch elm disease or DED as they call it. It started first on the East Coast with a shipment of, I don't know, wood or something, pallets that came over from Holland or something. And it spread through the elm trees killing them from East to West. And it took about, oh, about 15 years for it get all the way to the west. These beetles are very effective at killing elm trees. So they would kill off every elm tree on the block and leaving whole, you know, cities with like no trees. And I remember seeing that in a lot of places. It was just terrible. Yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, okay. I think think the beetles, what they did was they blocked the uh, sap from rising and moving around the tree and the tree. Right. Well, yeah, and the beetles were spreading the disease. 
seeing the Beatles myself uh, in Minnesota. The Beatles wiped out the majority of those elms. By this time, the USDA had been working hard on uh, replacement street trees. They were very keen on uh, different clones of uh, red maple and red maple hybridized with silver maple, what they call the Fremonti maples and so forth. USDA put out more than 100 different cultivars, which were, you know, cultivated varieties, clones uh, themselves. Each one had a name, and they did that over a period of years. And every single one that they put out was a male because they uh, they wanted these things to be uh, litter-free, tidy, clean, uh, neat, or low-maintenance, low or whatever they wanted to call it. But it was a great selling point, and they were very popular. And People bought them like crazy, and the city arborists uh, planted them like mad. And uh, and then they morphed it out into plants that, that weren't just separate sex. Okay, you take like a honey locust tree. Out in the woods, the honey locust tree, well, when it's got any size on it, it'll always have pods on it. It'll have branches that are male, branches that are female. But what the propagators did was they, they just took the cyan wood from the branches that were just male that had no paws. They created whole new trees of this, and then they sold those as pod-free or podless. Now, suddenly what those were all male trees of a species that didn't even exist in nature, and now you see that with many things. Out here in a lot of places where it's warm, you have these tall, skinny Italian cypress. Well, those are not all of one sex ever uh, when grown from seed. They'll have both. Female flowers on the top, making cones, the male on the bottom. But the propagators just started to take, instead of growing them from seed, they started to grow them off cuttings. They only took the cuttings from the lower male branches. Nowadays, every young uh, Italian cypress I've seen for the last dozen years, every one of them all male clone now. And cypress pollen is extremely allergenic. I mean, it. It blew my mind a couple of years ago when I first saw these, and I, and I was in uh, London uh, at a big nursery conference so a few months ago, and I saw them there too, but they're now selling begonias that are all male. I mean, they're quite wow. beautiful. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, in, in the old days, and here we're only talking five years, a begonia was not a plant of, of almost any concern for allergies. But when you suddenly start producing begonias that are all male, now, now suddenly uh, a plant that should be benign is now a, a potential allergy plant, particularly if it's in, and, and these particular type of begonias are all designed for hanging baskets. And so if you hang it over your head and you're sitting underneath of it or something out on the patio, even wow. that begonia now can become a problem. And so it's like, it was kind of like, Horticulture, I mean, nobody did this on purpose to cause allergies and asthma, but it certainly has. So and then it's the we same call time. Plantenstein? <laughs> yeah, Plantenstein? pretty much. <laughs> Plantenstein. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've been working on this stuff for, you know, close to 30 years. I've been publishing on it, well, 15 years now, a little bit more than that. In truth, the biggest uh, tree growers, certainly in the United States and Canada, they've been aware of my work for a long time. Does that mean that they've changed? No, not at all. And 
they're still making money on it, and it's still a very profitable gig for them. And so they're still doing the same thing. And so nowadays, like with this new book I have, The Allergy Fighting Garden, I'm I'm doing a huge amount of outreach to like public health people and doctors, in particular to allergists. Uh, I've sent a lot of copies to uh, professors of public health and professors of who are dealing specifically with allergies and asthma and so on. I'm getting a very good response because they're reading it and it makes perfect sense to them and they're seeing the problem. Do you have a top 12 list of potentially hazardous plants that people should be aware of? Well, I I don't know that I do, but I'll run you a bunch of them right here because a lot would depend on where you live. So say if you lived in uh, Barcelona or something or Los Angeles or Tel Aviv or whatever, you know, or Florida or something, maybe the worst tree would be an olive. The olive pollen is very allergenic, and there's there's two clones they've been selling for, oh, more than a dozen years. Uh, one of them is called Majestic Beauty, and the other one is called Swan Hill. They promote these things as being allergy-friendly or allergy-free, and they claim that they don't flower, and that's because they don't make any olives. I've collected the flowers and the pollen off them, and the reason they don't collect, they don't make any olives is because they're all male trees, and I don't know how they came up with that, but they did, because normally olive is not just one sex. But they do have all male olive trees now, and they don't make any olives, and they cause a huge amount of allergy. And the olive on it, uh, the pollen is explosively uh, allergenic. And then related to the olive are privet bushes, ligustrums, ash trees, and so on. And then, Did you say privet? Uh, huh? Privet, Did you yes. say pri- privet or privet? Privet. 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 You're right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or a pileate or whatever it's called. Okay. Well, there's a lot of different species of privet, you know. L- but that's part of the honeysuckle family, isn't it? No, no, no it's it's no. part of the olive. It's part of the olive family, actually, Olacea. Uh, they used to use it uh, to make hedges in the United States back in the 50s and 60s, very commonly for homes. It's not no, I thought anymore. I thought it was called Lanisra pileata. Uh, no, 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 no. Lanisera is a honeysuckle, but this is a different uh, bird altogether. Huh. Uh, this is an olive relative. Consult my uh, own. Yeah, no, 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 I got you on that one. But uh, the interesting thing, and then I'm going to give you some more plants here pretty quick, but the interesting thing about the olive and the privet pollen, uh, and they both cross-react with each other, is that they also cross-react with a bunch of other things, and so they cross-react with uh, cypress, and they cross-react with the uh, artemisia, the mugwoods, and so on. And hey, they Tom, cross- yeah. I'm going to interrupt you for just a second. When you say they cross-react, what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, I should explain that. I'm sorry. Okay, so say you had a... Uh, one of these male olive trees in your yard and you got exposed to a lot of pollen for a couple of years and then you develop the allergy to the olive, right? Okay, now your body is going to it's going to recognize other things that might not even be related 
and it's going to relate them to the olive allergy that you now have, and it's going to give you an allergic response to things that you weren't allergic to. Now, like take what cross-reacts with olive. Not only do uh, grass pollens and stuff react with it and the artemisias and the cypress and the privets, but then we get things like peaches and tomatoes and kiwis and all of these foods react. So the reason a person got allergic to eating the, the peach might have been because it got overexposed to, to the olive pollen. And then, even worse, they cross-react with the allergens in latex text. And a latex allergy can be deadly, very scary allergy. Goodness. So people have not connected these things. Some very good data, if you know where to dig, you know, and I know the best people in the world studying cross-reactivity. I mean, okay, say if you take a tree like a birch tree, the birch pollen will cross-react with a whole ton of different foods. So if you develop the birch allergy to the birch pollen, and the best way to do that is to plant a couple of birch trees in your own yard so that you and your family gets exposed to it all the time, then you can become allergic to oranges, carrots, peaches, cherries, plums, almonds, pears, apples, potatoes, hazelnuts, things like this. I mean, beech nuts, they're, they're, they all cross-react with that birch pollen. Wow. So the, the food allergies have become a very, a very uh, popular subject in recent years, and uh, I don't mean to diminish it because it is a big deal. What people are missing is that if they have the wrong plants in the yard and they're getting exposed to certain types of pollen that then cross-reacts with a lot of kinds of foods, that they are always basically priming the pump for these food allergies. You know, I mean, uh, who would eat a, uh, some celery and, and break out? in a rash or something, or, or the mouth get bad, or they don't feel good, and then ever think that that would be related to a, a birch tree, but because the birch tree and celery are not even remotely uh, botanically connected, mm -hmm. although they're both plants, and yet they both share the same cross-reactive allergens. Hey, Tom, so, I have another question for you real quick. Yeah. Um, thinking about what you're saying, you know, about what a person is exposed to and then how your allergies develop in your system. Have, yes. Has there been any research done to what happens when a woman has is pregnant and develops these allergies or gets exposed to these highly uh, allergic forces? Does it pass on to the infant? If she is then susceptible, is her unborn child also in any way affected? There's, there's very good data that a woman who's pregnant and is exposed to large amounts of pollen in her third trimester, that there's a very good likelihood that the child will then get the allergies, uh, more, more so than the mother. With pollen, everything is, is the dose. And I always like to say, it's like, if I had a headache and I took two aspirins, it might take my headache away and I might feel better. But if I had the same headache and I took 30 or 40 aspirins, it's not going to make my headache better. It's going to make me really sick. If we inhale a little bit of pollen,
all, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's it's good for us. It, it tweaks our immune system. And I'm not trying. I'm not advocating no pollen ever. Not at all. What I'm advocating is that we don't overexpose ourselves because, well, for example, a very popular new tree on the west coast, and it's they're using them in east too because it will grow into a zone five, I guess, probably grow where you are. It's called Chinese pistache tree, pistache chinensis. It's a very beautiful fall color. It's a deciduous tree. It's, it's a bright red-orange fall color. They like them instead of sweet gum trees because they don't crack the sidewalks as much. So they're planting millions of these things. The only clone, and, and they are separate sets, they're diaceous. The only ones that they're selling are male clones. And one of the clones is called, it's called like Macho, and another one's called Pearl Street or something. And, but mm-hmm. anyhow, if you plant that particular tree in your yard, when it gets some size to it, it will produce just clouds of pollen. Those people in that immediate vicinity, in the proximity of that tree, they will get very exposed to that. Now, that tree has relatives in horticulture and botany that it's related to poison sumac, it's related to poison ivy, it's related to poison oak, it's related to cashews, it's related to mangoes, it's related to pistachio nuts. And once you've got the allergy to the Chinese pistache pollen, very easily then get the allergy from eating the cashews or from eating the mangoes or from eating the, the pistachios, you know. And so in all of these things, once, uh, once we get overexposed and we trigger the allergy, uh, that, then we get into a whole problem situation. And, and again, everything with what I'm doing and talking about, all the importance all comes down to proximity. It's, it's all about where is that bush or where is that tree. It, if it's down the block, it's probably not going to cause you much problem. If it's like right in your own yard, it's almost certainly going to cause you or your kids or even your dog or your cat because they can get allergies too. It, it'll cause them problems sooner or later. It's just a question. Allergy always arises the same way. It's always repeated overexposure to a potential allergen over a period of time. And that's right. how you develop an allergen. Okay, so Chris hey, asked Chris. me, you know. First of all, the good news is that, Tom, you're right, I apologize, plant was uh, ligustrum. That's yes, correct. Lanistra badgison's gold is more like box tree. But um, that's my old fart them coming in. They, um, they, they did both start with an L. I'll give you that. Yes, they did. That was the closest. <laughs> and they both plants. Good job, Chris. Good and job. They both plants, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's an awful long time since I had a plant ident test, I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> 1975 was the last one. Anyway, okay. it's really fascinating, and it's even more fascinating because my daughter spends her entire life dealing with allergies in England. She's becoming quite an expert, and somehow or other, I've got to get you two in contact with each other because what she's doing and what you're doing is absolutely identical. Oh, my goodness. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's why I asked the question about the pregnant woman. I was thinking of your daughter. Yeah, I mean, Uh, some of the things she's doing, she's starting workshops and things now for, for the pharmaceutical companies so that they can understand the real problems of what's going on because my grandson... 
basically is well he's he bursts out into hives and things about on a week by week basis it's it's mm-hmm. just amazing thank you tom thank you so much for visiting with us today really really appreciate it it was fascinating thank you all for listening today we really appreciate your support and tuning in on growing trends again make sure to look for us on growingtrends.org for the podcast or we all are, are on itunes you can look for us as growing trends there as well look for the blonde and the brit and then you'll know that must be them Thanks for Man and Chris.